But we'll get started. We are in uh, Luke chapter 11 and also Luke 18 today. So I'll read Luke 11 right now. We'll get to chapter 18 here in a few minutes. Uh, Luke 11, we're only going to read the first four verses there. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place. After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, first off, since I got everything quiet, thanks, Craig, for the last couple of weeks for filling in. Uh, We enjoyed our trip to Indiana, got to see our grandson play some ball, got to celebrate our oldest grandson's 21st birthday with him. So we had a good time other than being crazy cold up there. It was a good time. You ever think about training in prayer? Training and leading prayer. Uh, we don't hear that often. People don't talk about getting training for prayer or, ah, oh, there's the 10 minute bell. Or uh, having a class on prayer. But isn't it interesting that John apparently was known for teaching his disciples to pray? And John was a man of prayer, John the Baptist. You don't really think about that. I mean, John was selected prior to his being born. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit, it says, was with him prior to his birth. And yet John needed to be a man of prayer. Not only that, John felt it was important for his disciples to learn how to pray. So he taught them how to pray. John was the one who would introduce Messiah to the world. And yet, John was a man of prayer. John was the greatest prophet of all time, according to Jesus. And yet, John was a man of prayer. His Jesus' disciples knew that. Matter of fact, there were a couple of his disciples that we know were John's disciples prior to. So, apparently, they had been trained by John with respect to prayer. So his disciples come to him at this particular instance and they say, teach us how to pray. Because they'd seen Jesus pray. Matter of fact, the biggest reason that, uh, that we ought to focus on prayer is the fact that our Lord was a man of prayer. Um, is it okay to write down a prayer before you get up there to lead a prayer? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is, because when you get in front of a group and you're going to lead a prayer, a lot of times your mind just goes absolutely blank. Um, after a little while, I started just writing notes, not, not actually writing out my entire prayer, but just, especially if I wanted to mention somebody's name, you know, I would write that down. Or a particular ministry or something like that, I would write that down. And incorporate that. But depending on the setting, I have written out the entire prayer because I wanted it exactly the way I planned it. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to do that. But he says rather to pray in this manner. So one, I think it's okay 
if we want to train people how to pray, matter of fact, I think it's probably a good idea. If Jesus' disciples thought it was good to be trained to pray, John's disciples apparently thought it was a good idea to be trained to pray. Probably a good idea for us, too. But as I said, probably the biggest reason we need to focus on prayer is that our Lord was a man of prayer. In Luke 3.21, we find that he prayed at his baptism. Matter of fact, the scripture says there that as he was praying, the heavens opened up, the Spirit came down and rested on him. That happened while he was praying. In Luke 6, 12 through 16, Jesus was in prayer the entire night before he selected the 12 that we know to be apostles. So he spent all night in prayer. Uh, Mark 1, 35 through 37 says that he went out alone without telling anybody. You know, he went for privacy just to spend time with his father. And um, Luke 5, 15 and 16 says that it was his custom to do this. He often did this, sneak off alone to be, spend time with his father. Uh, John six eleven, he prayed for the loaves and the fishes. Matthew fourteen eighteen through 21 says the same thing. And that was both occasions, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, Mark four, or Matthew fourteen twenty two through twenty four, he prayed alone after feeding the masses, and before walking on the water. So if you remember, he sent the apostles out on the boat, and he went to be alone to pray. Uh, Luke nine eighteen. Prior to asking the disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" Jesus was in prayer, and it's after he prays that he asks his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" And then, of course, who do you say that I am? Uh, also in Luke 9, verse 28 through 33, when he went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the scripture says he went up to pray. And it's then and there that he's transfigured. But his purpose, obviously he knew what was going to take place, but his purpose was to go and to be in prayer. In John 11, at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus prays. In uh, Matthew 19, verse 13, he prays publicly for the little children. In John 17, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus is chapter 17 of John. In Matthew 26, 36 through 46, he prayed three times in Gethsemane. And based on what he says to the apostles, he prayed at least an hour each time. Because he comes back and he says, could you not watch just for an hour? And they had fallen asleep. And then, of course, Luke 23, 46, when Jesus is on the cross, he prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus, the perfect Son of God, felt that it was necessary to pray and be a man of prayer and be disciplined in his prayer life and spend lots of time with the Father, don't you think we should? If his disciples who were with him day in and day out felt that it was necessary to learn how to pray... Don't you think we should? Yeah, I think so too. And so that's why it's important for us to look at this very simple yet very complex prayer that he has here. Now, disciple, we've talked about this before. Disciple is a student, a learner, or a pupil. It's most often referred to in Scripture as referring to, rather, those who were following Jesus, those learners or students of Jesus. Sometimes it is specifically for the 12 apostles. Uh, you just have to determine that by context. But typically, the word apostle talks about those 12 who were closer to him than the disciples, which would refer to 
all the followers, so a much larger group. And a a disciple of the Lord is a person who regards Jesus as his master teacher. Now, leading up to this prayer, leading up to this event, if you look back in chapter 10, there are several things that take place. He sends out the 72, he gives them power to perform miracles, and he tells them to go into a village and to teach, and to heal, if, you know, if that's required, to do the things that, that he's supposed to do. And when they come back, they are all excited, and they tell about the miraculous responses that they had to their message, but also how they were able to heal sicknesses and diseases and even cast out demons. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. Uh, Satan got a body blow out of that. I saw, I saw Satan fall as a result of what y'all did. Um, the account of the Good Samaritan. That was uh, also in chapter 10, response to the question of what must I do for eternal life? And Jesus says, you should show mercy. He also visits Martha and Mary's home in Bethany, and he, ch- he tells the disciples there to choose the more important thing. You know, Martha was worried about getting things done around the house. Mary was sitting at his feet, learning from him, and he says, Mary has chosen the better thing. So, the effect of the 72, the effect on Satan as well as on them, showing mercy, choosing the better thing, and then they see Jesus pray. He modeled prayer for them, and they were so impressed with this that they asked him to teach us how to pray, just like John taught his disciples how to pray. So, he tells them, when you pray, say, Father. Now, Matthew's account says, our, our Father in heaven. And, and that's kind of understood. It's not here in Luke's account, although I think some later manuscripts have added it to kind of make Luke's account match Matthew's account, but it's not there in the original. But it is Father. Now, What does that mean when you just hear Father? Well, to me, it means there's a relationship there. It's different than saying God. It's different than saying Lord. It's Father. He says when you address your prayer, you address your Father. There's a relationship here. It is knowing God, not knowing about God. It is knowing God. He is your father, and you need to know him just as you would know, or even better than you know, your earthly father. And if you have a good relationship with your father or your mother, that ought to be the kind of thing that you're trying to create with your heavenly father. Certainly on the spiritual realm, but it applies on the physical realm as well. It's a relationship. So he says, call him our father. Um, In the Old Testament... I gave you three verses that you can look at, Deuteronomy 32, uh, Isaiah 63, and Hosea 11, that entire chapter, really. But God was the physical, or the spiritual father, rather, of the Israelite nation. He had rescued them out, and he tells them, I am going to be your father. So he's adopted them in, and Jesus is telling his disciples now, guess what, because I have come... This possibility exists for you now to be God's children. And you address him then as father. A righteous lifestyle comes out of a right relationship with God. Part of that is getting on a speaking basis with the father. Prayer ultimately shows and expresses our total dependence on God. 
If you remember Wednesday night, um, if you checked out Blake's lesson or you were listening in or you were here, he talked about a test you can take to determine whether you're self-righteous or not. You know, um, yeah, if you got that problem, then this is not going to help you. Prayer is the opposite of that. Prayer is the opposite of being self-sufficient. It is the opposite of being self-dependent. It is rather saying, I am totally dependent on God. I know that I cannot save myself. I know that I have no chance to be in heaven without Jesus and doing it God's way. So prayer says that. The next thing he says is, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? That's a weird word, right? We don't use that very often. Matter of fact, I can't think of a day that I haven't been reading my Bible that I've encountered that word, right? Do you all use hallowed in your speech? I don't, I don't know anybody that does. But what does it mean? Well, it's to regard as holy, to regard as righteous, to regard as God. I, I was thankful that David today said, we are here today to praise your name. That's what he's talking about. You're praising God because he is the creator of everything. You're praising God because he is creator of you. You're praising God because he has devised a plan to save you, to be with you for all of eternity. And that he was willing to send his son, who was also willing to come, suffer and die for you and me, so that we can be there. His name must be honored. It is a holy name. And our thoughts about God must be pure. They must be lofty. They must be holy. We need to honor God both in the reverence expressed in our prayers, but also in the life. The life that we live should show that we honor God and we respect his name. And, of course, that also means that his name should not be used in a derogatory fashion. And you hear people that will put damn with God, and God is not in the damning business. Putting those two together does not hallow his name, but rather the very opposite of it. And well, that's not what we're supposed to do. So if you have some, some situation where you would like to use his name in a derogatory fashion, you, as Blake said, engage your brain. Think about that. His name will be hallowed. It will not be used in a derogatory fashion. And also in, in this particular case, we're using a, a first-person plural pronoun, which would indicate that these prayers or this prayer could be prayed corporately as a group prayer. What does he say next? He says, your kingdom come. This really refers to the reign of Jesus or the reign of God over everything, all of creation, all of the universe, everything that you can think of but especially in the hearts and the minds of us. God is interested in our heart. You know, Jesus said before that, that all things come out of, the, out of the mouth of man. They come from the heart. Everything that a man does comes from the heart. And it's not the things going in your body that defile you, but rather the things that come from you that defile you, things that come out of your heart. God is interested in being the king of your life. And the king in your heart. Uh, Jesus' followers recognize the kingdom began with Jesus coming here to this earth. And he tells us that the kingdom is within you in Luke 17, 21. 
So to pray that your kingdom come is to pray that more and more people will enter into this kingdom, that evil will be destroyed, and that God will continue to establish his kingdom up to the point that there is a new heaven and a new earth. <clears throat> the, uh, the phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is in the New King James, but it's not in the other uh, translations except maybe in a footnote. There again, that was a phrase that was added later to kind of match it up with, with um, Matthew chapter 6, but it's not there in the original. Your kingdom come was more than a prayer for establishment of the Lord's church. It's an expression of the importance of God's reign over the universe, and as I said, particularly in people's hearts. Nothing more important in the lives of the children of God than the establishment of God's rule. This perspective enables the disciples to live faithfully. It enables us to live faithfully when we incorporate God as the center of our universe, as was pointed out in the Lord's Supper today, and as Blake referenced it back in his sermon today, Jesus has to be the center of it all. And that's when we get proper perspective. Give us each day our daily bread. Bread is referred to, or maybe could be used as a generic term for food, It could be physical, it could be spiritual. And the daily part reveals that God's provision is daily, and we don't need to worry from one day to the next because it is there. It's an interesting word that's translated daily here, too. The Greek word that's translated daily here does not appear any other place in the Bible except in the prayer recorded in Matthew chapter 6 and this prayer that's recorded in Luke chapter 11. It's translated as necessary for existence, and it's also translated as for this day. It's also translated as for the following day. So if you think back to the Old Testament, when God was taking the children of Israel out of the uh, Egyptian bondage and they were going to the promised land, what happened there? Well, God provided for them manna. He also provided quail. Um, and one time he provided quail clean up to their necks. I don't know if you remember that or not, but that was when they were fussing about no meat. He said, oh, yeah, you want meat? Have meat. Um, but God provided manna such that you would go out every morning and collect what you needed for that day. Only for that day. Except on the sixth day when you collected two days' worth. If you collected extra On the earlier days, when you got up the next morning, it was rotten. Couldn't be used. But on that sixth day, the manna collected for two days lasted for those two days. That way, no gathering had to be made on the seventh day because there was nothing to gather on the seventh day. He didn't put it out there. Well, that's the kind of thing that he is referencing here, that God will provide us what we need as we need it, but not in excess so he will meet our, na- our daily needs just as he met their daily needs. And there's no reason to worry. Um, as long as they trusted their heavenly father, he would take care of them. And the same is true for us. And in Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 33 and 34. Actually, there's a longer deal there, 25 through 34, where he talks about the birds of the air. You know, they don't have any problem. God takes care of them. The flowers of the field, they don't have any problem. God takes care of them. You are much more valuable than birds. You are much more valuable than these flowers, and God will take care of you. And he wraps it all up in verse 33 and 34. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And that's the way we need to look at it. And then he says, or we are to pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Uh, Matthew's account says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. So just as we seek God for our daily provision, we also seek God for our daily forgiveness. And and it's interesting, too, that Jesus would, in his prayer, ask us to state, so this is a self-declaration, Father, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. You think about that? You know, we, we think in the back of our mind about that, but a lot of times we don't think that through. But he's saying this should be your prayer. Don't just ask God to forgive you, but ask God to forgive you as you are forgiving others. You know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you will not forgive, you will not be forgiven. He doesn't say that here, but I think it's implied. But rather, he's asking you to ask God in your prayer to forgive you as you have forgiven others. If we won't forgive, we will not be forgiven. It is a self-imposed condition. And if you remember last week, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, the lesson that Craig had on forgiveness, you know, we have got such a massive debt To God. Sin will absolutely ruin eternity for us. And God says, it's gone. Through Jesus, it is gone. And then we turn around, and we got a little gripe with somebody else, and we won't let it go? Do you remember the parable that Craig taught? Do you remember what happened when word got to the master? He says, okay, you don't want to forgive? I'll turn you over to the jailers. And they can extract punishment on you until you can pay back everything, a debt that you cannot ever repay. And yet, over some trivial little matter, I'm not willing to get over it. You don't want that. You don't want to be in that boat. So becoming a follower or disciple of Christ... We enter a new relationship, not only with God, but also with others. Forgiveness is essential in this newfound spiritual relationship. We've got to get alone. Then Jesus also says, lead us not into temptation. Now, this word temptation here is probably more into test or trial. It is not an enticement to sin because God does not tempt anyone to sin. But he will test us. And he tests us so that he can figure out whether we're going the right way or not, right? 
Go this way. No. He tests us so that we know we're heading in the right direction or not. Because God already knows. It's just, it's just like the, uh, it's just like Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Do you remember, uh, on that occasion, uh, after the test or the trial is over, God says, now I know there is nothing you will withhold from me. Did God know that ahead of time? Oh yeah. He knew that ahead of time, but who didn't know it? Abraham didn't. Yeah, so when there's a test in your life, when there's a trial in your life, when there's something you come up against, it's not so that God knows which way you're going to go. It's so you know which way you're going to go. He put that there for your benefit, not his. He already knows which way you're headed. He already knows your heart. So we ask that he will not let us be tempted above what we can stand. That he will do exactly as he has promised that he would do. Uh, in Roman, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation is overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but with each temptation will provide a way of escape so that you are able to endure it. So, God has promised you already. Nothing's going to hit you that you cannot withstand. He will provide you the strength you need to stand up under it. He will provide you a way out. God is faithful. And we need to base our prayer on that kind of knowledge. If you remember, Jesus was tempted in the garden too. And his prayer the one that I mentioned earlier, he prayed three times in Matthew chapter 26, um, at least an hour each time. The basic deal was, if there's any way possible, God, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? Because most of the time, we're like, God, would you make this go away? God, would you take this out of my life? God, would you help me out of this mess? But we don't follow it up with the very thing that Jesus said, Nevertheless, God, not my will, but your will be done. Most of the time, when we're asking for somebody to get well, we follow that up with, your will be done. What we want is will to be done on everything. Not just somebody recovering from some illness. How about temptation? How about trial? How about testing? Nevertheless, God, your will, not mine, be done. Disciples are involved in a daily spiritual battle, and it necessitates our dependence on God to help us out in all situations. Now, the second part of this lesson after talking about prayer itself, was to talk specifically about an abuse of prayer or a misuse of prayer in John, or I'm sorry, in Luke 18. In Luke 18, he starts by talking about a woman. Uh, he gives a parable about a woman coming to an unrighteous judge and pleading for justice in her case. 
and she can't get it. But because she keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming, the judge says, I'm going to relieve her of this. Otherwise, she's just going to drag me down. She's going to wear me out. The difference between, and, and Jesus says, this is what you need to do with God. You need to keep coming. You need to keep coming. The difference, though, between this unrighteous judge and God is he wants to hear from you. He wants to honor you. He wants to bless you. He wants to help you out. But we need to be persistent in prayer as she was. But then he follows up in in verse 9 of chapter 18. He also told them this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus picks two uh, polar opposites. He picks a Pharisee that people would probably regard, and certainly most of the Pharisees would regard, as highly religious and in good standing with God. And then he chooses a tax collector, which most people, especially Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers, would say is off the spectrum on the other end because he is in league with the Romans. Two guys at the temple to pray. So first off, they're both Jew. Uh, they're both at the temple. So uh, the things that you're that he's fixing to describe are probably things that these people are seeing around them at the temple. He's not identifying something very new. So the Pharisee is the one identified as trusting in himself. They often oppose Jesus. The tax collector obviously does not trust in himself, but rather humbles himself before God. The Pharisee's prayer He separates himself from the others at the temple. He separates himself physically. He separates himself spiritually. And then he proceeds to tell God how good he is. But God knows everything. If he is good, he doesn't have to tell God he's good. And he does not ask God for anything. Consequently, he receives nothing. The tax collector stood at a distance, refused to even look up to heaven, beats his breast and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows that he is totally dependent on God for his salvation. And he is willing to admit the fact that he's a sinner. The other guy is busy talking about how good he is and what he's done and why God should be proud of him. This guy knows that his only chance for heaven is God. And so that's why... He humbles himself. And Jesus then commends the tax collector. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Everyone who exalts himself, as the Pharisee had done, will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself, as the tax collector did, will be exalted. Two polar opposites. And we need to make sure that we don't fall into that self-righteous category where we're busy telling God how good we are, but rather how much we need God and how much we want him. 
Uh, there were a lot of abuses to prayer. I gave you a few verses you can look at, but just a quick list. Vain repetitions, long prayers, attracting attention to self, impure motives, insincere beliefs, being double-minded, and not asking according to God's will. Prayer connects the disciples to God, the Heavenly Father, and it it connects us to each other. Prayer will keep God in the center, the highest one in the room, center of our life, center of our heart. And this world is focused on doing God's will. That's what we need to concentrate on, that God is the center of our life, the focus of our life, and we are working to do God's will. Thank you very much for your attention today, and we will pick up next week, I think, with Jesus and the Rich Young Ruler, Matthew chapter 19.